everybody. Uh, my name is Lucas Johnson, and uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture while holding guitar. Hopefully that's okay. Our scripture is going to be 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that righteousness is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may you apply it to our hearts and in doing so change our perspective. Lord, give us a unnatural, a supernatural perspective on our suffering. May we see how our pain relates to Christ, his suffering, and may we be changed from our despair, our surprise, the strangeness of suffering. May we be changed to see our pain as that which produces good and brings you glory. Uh, Lord, do this amazing, radical transformation in our heart as we look at your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It has been a different and in many ways difficult two weeks. Two weeks ago, I preached 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Two Sundays ago, I preached on how to follow Jesus in our suffering, how to see our suffering through the lens of Christ's suffering. And then, the following Monday, I got to see just how well I paid attention to my own sermon. Uh, did I really believe what I said? Was I going to put into practice what I preached or not? The day after I preached on suffering, I was at one of my discipleship group meetings. Uh, uh, Jacob Myrick was in that meeting, and he asked me, jokingly, having just turned 40, are there any new pains? Do you have any new pains? I said, as a matter of fact, my stomach kind of hurts. Uh, I, I say that, apparently there's nothing wrong with my stomach because I proceed to eat a whole barbecue pizza right in front of them. Uh, but I did have this pain Monday morning in my stomach. And by Monday night, I was really in pain. I was really suffering. I went to bed, as like many of you probably have done before, praying. Lord, I don't know what's going on. 
I don't know what this pain's all about, but I'm trusting you with it. I want to follow Christ by trusting him in my suffering. The next morning I woke up, and guess what? The pain was still there. Still there. Very much still there. On top of all that was going on with me internally, my family had a lot going on externally. My grandfather on my mother's side, Daddy Jim, had just passed away. He was a strong believer, a great man, with a hundred lovable quirks about him. I'm realizing more and more that many of my quirks are actually my grandfather's quirks. Uh, We both walk around singing one line from the same song, uh, getting that line wrong most of the time as well. Uh, We had one day as a family to prepare for the funeral, and then we were supposed to travel down to Florida. Uh, But that pain was still there. That pain was there. And because of the time pressure, I did something that I normally would not have done. I got it checked out. And perhaps you know this moment, you're all too familiar with this moment when you're, you're there getting something checked out, you're waiting for the test results to come back, and mentally you see two different diverging paths in front of you. Either everything looks fine and we're off to my grandfather's funeral, or everything does not look fine and we're off to DH, DCH for surgery. Moments like that, moments of uncertainty, are times of real testing in which our hearts really need to be rewired in order to say, okay, Lord, in the uncertainty, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with my pain. I'm going to trust you with my future. Though I do not know in which direction it is going, which path I'm about to take, but whatever lies ahead, I'll trust you'll be with me. And that you'll see me through. I had to practice what I preached in those moments of uncertainty. But even more so, once certainty came. The news did come back. And it's the news I didn't want to hear. It's appendicitis. And you need to go to the emergency room right now for a surgery. Okay, uncertainty is gone. Now I have to trust when emergency surgery is a certainty, when the news is bad. And as I was waiting for surgery on Tuesday, word began to filter out among church family, and it was Jacob Reed. Is Jacob in here? There he is. Jacob Reed, who sent me a message that said, remember, this is for your sanctification. You know how you're told people don't want you to remind them of weighty truths while they're suffering. You've been told that, right? Well, that is not always the case. Not always the case. I really appreciated, Jacob, that text. I did. Because the way to suffer the way Peter describes here isn't a one-and-done, tick-the-box-and-I'm-good kind of way. It's a moment-by-moment kind of thing. It's a moment-by-moment battle to keep a heavenly perspective on our pain when you're in pain. When I'm in pain, I need reminders. When you're in pain, you need reminders. You need a Jacob Reed texting you. 
I, I needed reminders to see my present suffering through a gospel lens. And to see by faith what God might be accomplishing through my pain. And that it was something good. Because when you're hurting, it's easy to lose your grip upon great truths. They just kind of slip from you. Great truths are meant to be there in the moment to rewire us. To rewire our hearts, changing how we respond to big things like suffering in our life. Our passage in 1 Peter is going to tell us just that uh, again today. We've, we've seen it once in 1 Peter 4 already. We're going to see it again in verses 12 through 19. And I'll admit here, it's a bit scary preaching on suffering again so soon. Who knows what next week's going to be like. It's a, bit, it's a bit scary, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because that's where we are in 1 Peter. I'm not going to skip over it. And because both you and I need to be reminded of great truths. Great truths that can rewire our response to suffering. That's what Peter's doing here. He wants to rewire us from the inside. This is his goal in, in our passage. Peter is trying to change our knee-jerk reaction to suffering. Like an electrician rewiring a circuit in order for the light bulb to flip, flip a switch and flip on a different bulb than it does before, Peter is trying to rewire our hearts so that suffering will produce a different reaction than it did before. Suffering won't light up the old bulb, it'll light up the new. Because, for many of us, when the electric current of suffering is switched on in our lives, it still lights up this old bulb. The old bulb of surprise. Surprise, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Suffering comes, and our natural response is to be surprised by it. Why? Why are we so often surprised by suffering? Why is our gut response to treat it as though something strange is happening to me when suffering comes? Part of the answer could be, just the age we live in. In the modern world, we've done all that we can do to distance ourselves and ensure ourselves against every bit of suffering that we possibly can. In the modern world, we can take out an appendix before it ruptures. That's amazing, actually. And the insurance company will pay for it. Mostly. Hopefully. Suffering feels strange because we've insulated ourselves from it as much as we possibly can. That may be part of the answer, but there has to be more to it than that. Because the people Peter is writing to don't have all the comforts. They don't have the insurances. They don't have the domestic security we have. They don't have the health care we do. And yet... They are still surprised by suffering. They're still surprised when pain comes, as though something strange were happening to them. So there has to be a reason that cuts across time 
for why suffering feels surprising. I think part of the answer could be that suffering is not the expected norm in any time or any season of history. In God's common grace, he causes the sun to shine on the best and worst of humanity. In every age, God fills our lives with good things, the pleasures of sunsets, of food, of family, of sports, of good stories, of satisfying work. Suffering feels strange because we begin to see all these good things as normal for us. We begin to see all these good things as what we are due, what we deserve. They are ours by right, all the good things in life. Suffering feels strange then in a way that a sudden stomach pain feels strange. My gut ought not to feel this way. We begin to presume that a pain-free existence is what we're entitled to, at least up to a certain age, right? Until you turn 40. Perhaps we feel that we've earned it. We can have a, very easily, a contractual understanding with God. That if we keep the rules, we can avoid the hardships. Have you ever thought like that? God, I've been striving to do everything right. Why then did you let this pain into my life? My appendix didn't need to go bad, whatever, whatever it does, I don't know, inflame. That did, why? Why did you let me get hurt when I was doing my best living up to my end of the bargain? Do you know anyone that thinks like that? For whom their relationship with God was always something contractual. And it took a moment of suffering to reveal that to be the case. They were religious, but then walked away because some fiery ordeal came upon them, shocking them. And they felt like God didn't live up to his side of the bargain, of their unspoken bargain. I live this way, I get to be exempt from this suffering. Do you know anyone like that? You don't have to be religious for that to be your mindset either. You can be a completely secular, irreligious person. As an irreligious person, you had an understanding with the universe. That if you exercise a certain amount and eat a certain way, then you would feel and look a certain way. In that case, your high cholesterol or your new thyroid problem or your appendix bursting feels like a strange betrayal. I did what I was supposed to do. I followed the nutrition guides and the exercise guidelines. And yet, I'm the one suffering and not that portly gentleman sitting over there eating his second breakfast. It's not fair, right? It's shockingly unfair. Both the religious and the irreligious person can be shocked by suffering. But there is perhaps another reason why suffering may shock us as Christians. As Christians, suffering may surprise us because we've misunderstood what it means for God to be our Father. 
we wrongly assume that for God to be a good father means that he will protect us from everything that could hurt us. After all, what good father will allow this bad thing to happen to his child? If that's the way we think, then we should be surprised and think it strange whenever suffering enters into our life. But if that's the way we think, then we haven't thought a lot about the gospel, have we? What happens to the Son of God in the gospel story? You remember this scene at Jesus' baptism? The Son of God, Jesus comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. And a voice from heaven, the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's the very next verse? The Son is sent out into the wilderness to suffer. To be personally tempted by the devil. What are we to conclude? This is how God deals with those whom he loves. His beloved son. Ultimate example here, of course, is the cross. The cross. And guess what? Jesus' call to us is come die. Take up your cross and follow after me daily. With our limited wisdom, we can easily fail to see what it means for God to be a good father. It is not exemption from all suffering. That's not the way he treated Jesus. That's not the way he treats us. We forget this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. We forget this. Hebrews says, you have forgotten the word of encouragement addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose heart when he rebukes you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are not sons, you are illegitimate children. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we might share his holiness. Bottom line from Hebrews. Bottom line, don't be surprised by suffering. It is not something strange. It is not something you've earned a pass on. The Bible says, Hebrews says, you're actually in a bad and scary place when you feel exempt from suffering. That's the worst place to be. In God's economy, suffering has an important part to play in rewiring our insides, in rewiring our hearts. God uses suffering for our good and for our growth in holiness, rewiring us from the inside to be more like God. Christ. Peter says in verse 12 that suffering is a test. You see that verse 12? This has come upon you for your testing. Suffering is a test, like an exam. And like any exam, it's something you need to prepare yourself for. 
You don't want to go into an exam unprepared, do you? Something you need to prepare for. And here is the emotional response that God is looking for. Here is what acing the test looks like. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. The test for me this past week was one of my emotional response. On an emotional level, how would I respond to pain, to disappointment, to emergency surgery? Let me tell you, it makes a lot of difference when you see the fiery ordeal you're in as a test. It makes a lot of difference. It makes a big difference for your emotional response in the moment of suffering. Again, do not be surprised about the suffering that you're in. It's something strange happening to you. It's there for your testing. But to the degree you do suffer, keep on rejoicing. What is the emotional response that God aims to produce in our suffering? In one word, you see it, verse 13? Joy. Joy. Joy now and overflowing joy forever. That's how we ace the test. Why is that? Why that response? Why joy? It's because joy in suffering is so very clearly supernatural. Right? It is not natural. Joy in hardships is so very clearly above and beyond what we are naturally capable of. Above and beyond what's natural. What is our natural response to suffering? What is your default reaction to painful circumstances? Isn't it shock? Isn't it complaint? Isn't it anger? Isn't it self-pity? Isn't it anxiety? Isn't it despair? That's, that's not default reactions. All of these emotions, however, are as far away from joy as it gets. They're the other side of the spectrum. But believing the gospel can so completely rewire a person. Like Saul of Tarsus, he has to change his name. He's a new person. And the gospel rewires him to say incredible things like this. Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering. Who says that? What crazy person says that? I rejoice in my suffering. It's as though the gospel takes a switch that should open a trap door and rewires it to open a skylight instead. Suffering should make a person fall down into despair. But when viewed through a gospel lens, it can make a believer soar upward in supernatural joy. That's why the Apostle James tells us to consider it all joy. When you encounter various trials. Jesus tells us that when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil things against you because of me, what are you to do? How do you respond? Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Believing what God says about suffering so rewires 
our perspective on suffering, that it produces something unworldly. Something the world cannot make sense of, but is nevertheless attracted to. You can imagine the people in Jerusalem scratching their heads in wonder as Jesus' disciples limp away from the public beating, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they have been counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. Such an unnatural thing. Walk away from being flogged and beaten, happy, rejoicing. What can do that? It's a heart that's been changed, a perspective that has been changed on suffering. Or just imagine the Jewish Christians in Alexandria, who the book of Hebrews says, who rejoiced at the plundering of their property because they believed they had a better possession and an abiding one. If that is what Jesus can do for a person, give them joy in the midst of pain, then I could use some of that in my life, the unbeliever says. That's worth investigating if it produces that. Now, don't let me give you a false impression here that the Christian response to suffering is all one-sided. Like Christianity has completely flipped the switch off to, to sorrow and on to joy. Because the truth is more complex than that. I was sorrowful to miss my grandfather's funeral last week. I was sorrowful. But that wasn't my only emotional response. That wasn't even my main emotion. As Christians, we can live out the reality described by the Apostle Paul. We are sorrowful, yet always what? Rejoicing. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's a complexity to our emotional response. We can feel hurts. We can feel the hurt of suffering and the reaction that this ought not be, this bad thing, this ought not be. This isn't the world as God intends it or as he will remake it one day where pain and illness and injustice and death are all abolished forevermore. That's the world we all want. That's the world as it should be. We can feel the hurt while at the same time feel the hope. God is using these momentary light afflictions to produce and prepare me for a future glory that vastly exceeds all my present suffering. So, I can rejoice now in my suffering because by faith, I see what's coming. I'm just a mile away. Faith sees my pain is for a moment, but my joy is forever. Look again at verse 13. Verse 13 says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. It was G.K. Chesterton who observed this. He said, Christianity satisfies suddenly and perfectly man's ancestral instinct for being right way up. Satisfies it supremely in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic. 
and sadness something special and small. Christianity, by its creed, sweetens all of life. Do you know that to be true? The gospel sweetens all of life. Not just the good bits, the parts that were already naturally sweet. Christianity makes those sweeter. The sunset is sweeter for knowing the maker of the sunset, right? The bird's song is sweeter for knowing the king of creation put that bird there for you to hear and rejoice in. The good things are sweeter, but believing the gospel sweetens also the bitter bits of life as well. The hard, the painful parts of life. The part that no one would find to be sweet. Once you found a creed that gives you joy both in the good and in the bad of life, then joy becomes something that is truly gigantic and sadness something special and small. Chesterton says that this is what mankind really wants deep down. All of us. It's what we really want deep down. This is our ancestral desire. He says man is more himself, more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. Joy is the fundamental thing, grief the superficial. Don't you feel that to be true? When you're having a good laugh with friends on some sunny day that you thought would never end, you are more yourself. Man is more manlike. We are more the way we are supposed to be. We feel lifted above the worries and troubles of this present world. And with a laugh, we feel closer to that state of blessing associated with the world to come. We are more ourselves. But what if there was a way to move through the trials and troubles of this present world while reflecting the blessed state of the world to come? Having the power of the age to come now. Not just avoiding or ignoring suffering, but actually moving through it with joy. Well, there is. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. How can you suffer insults and still feel blessed? You can't. Unless you already have the spirit and power of the age to come. In other words, being blessed doesn't look like freedom from suffering. Verse 14, does it? Doesn't look like freedom from suffering. Real blessing doesn't look like the absence of pain, but the presence of joy in the pain, in the suffering. It's not the ability to avoid hard things but the ability to move through hard things with a happy, contented spirit. Blessing, that's true blessing. Blessing is found in believing a truth that turns the world on its head so that when someone curses you for following Jesus, you take it for what it really is, a blessing. Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. But woe to you 
when all men speak well of you. For their forefathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Christian, being blessed looks different from what most people think. It does. Different than what most religious people in the world think and what most irreligious people think. But here's one thing that all those groups can agree on. We agree on as well. Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Peter says there is a world of difference between suffering because you're following Christ and suffering because you're being a jerk. Or worse, a criminal. There's a world of difference, right? We all know this, that it's justice when those who commit a crime suffer a proportional punishment. That's just. They're receiving what is due. That's justice. That's the nature of justice. Peter says, don't suffer as a criminal. That is, suffer justly. Instead, we rejoice when our suffering is unjust suffering. When it is unjust. Not when it is just, but when it is unjust. It is far better to suffer injustice than to suffer justly as a criminal. But you could look at verse 15 and ask the question, yes, I I see there's crimes there, but is it a crime then to be a troublesome meddler? It's not a crime yet, but it should be, right? Being a troublesome meddler today in some circles is actually becoming increasingly in fashion. And it's often cloaked as political activism, but it's really just troublesome meddling. Uh, But C.S. Lewis, in his fiction, I think he had the right idea. The kings and queens of Narnia, they had the right idea. Said they made good laws and kept the peace and saved good trees from being unnecessarily cut down and liberated young dwarves and young satyrs from being sent off to school and generally stopped busybodies and interferers and encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. Y'all, this is what the Bible is calling us to do. Pray for kings and all those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. First Peter, sorry, First Timothy 2, verse 2. Make it your ambition, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. This is the opposite side of the spectrum from being a troublesome meddler. Peter says, don't suffer justly because of the way you manipulate people and the feelings of others or because of the interpersonal problems you create. But when you suffer unjustly, there's no shame in it. Verse 16, verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Instead, glory. Glorify God. What was intended to create shame is instead a cause to glory. You might be experiencing this right now in your life. Perhaps at work. Perhaps at school. Someone trying to shame you for having a Christian view of marriage or sexuality, or gender identity, or sin, or creation. 
instead of hanging your head in shame, you can turn your face toward heaven with a smile. You've been counted worthy of suffering shame for the honor of the world's true king. And that's a glorious thing. What they meant as a badge of shame, God transforms into a badge of honor. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The shamer's intent is turned on its head. And one day, this will be made universally clear. This is the reason for an end-time judgment. God will make it universally clear that many of the shames we bear now will one day be judged as our glory. Likewise, many of the things people glory in now will one day cause them eternal shame. The final judgment exists to correct all those things, to correct every misconception, to right every wrong ever done. And that is naturally where Peter's mind goes next. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What's Peter saying here? Let's first remember who Peter is. Remember, Peter was there on the day that the rich young ruler paid Jesus a visit. And as the rich young ruler sadly walks away, Peter hears Jesus say, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for the camel to pass through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And do you remember how Peter and the other disciples responded? Then who can be saved? They said, astonished. Who can be saved? Remember Jesus' answer? The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. How difficult then is it for the righteous to be saved? In human terms, difficulty level, impossible. But God did the impossible in sending his son to bear our punishment and give us a perfect righteousness. If that was the great links it took to save those who hear and believe the gospel, what hope is there for those who do not obey the gospel, Peter says? What hope is there for those who have to stand before God as their own saviors, their own functional saviors, who have to stand before God on their own merits, who have to answer for all their own injustices? Peter says it will not be good on that day them. And even for us, Paul says that the judgment will be like fire, a fire that either consumes or refines our life's work. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So, if this is the way it is for us, Let's not give ground one bit in shame to those who don't obey the gospel. It will be tempting to do so, especially as Christians are increasingly out all by ourselves, out of the mainstream on things like sexual ethics. It'll be increasingly tempting to give in 
And we hold a completely different doctrine of sin and creation, completely different from the rest of society. It will be tempting to give in while giving in to, to the shame and affirming things we shouldn't. We may still be saved. The New Testament warns us that what we built upon the cultural values of our day, those will probably be the first things tossed into the fire and burned up in the judgment. So, instead of giving up or giving in, here is what we should do as we encounter suffering. Here's what we should do, verse 19, our last verse. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It's really pretty simple, isn't it? In suffering, we are called to trust God. Trust God. We are called to trust a faithful creator. We are called to continue to do what's right because he will do what is right. We are called to trust and obey for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I remember being in a family's home in North Yorkshire. This family had adopted several high-needs children into their family. And I remember being very moved upon seeing a mural on their kitchen wall, which gave some pretty clear instructions. I asked if I could take a picture of it, and I believe I have a copy of that picture maybe for you to see here as well. Uh, Very simple statements. You can throw it up there if we have it. Very simple statements. Here it is. It was this. Happy moments. What do you do? Happy moments. Praise God. Difficult moments. Seek God. Quiet moments. Worship God. Painful moments. Trust God. Every moment. Thank God. It's really very simple, isn't it? There is a proper response to every moment. It can be beautifully simple, a beautifully simple response. Trust God, seek God, thank God. It can also be a complex response. I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But these new responses will only come out of us as the gospel rewires our hearts. So, friends... Whatever unexpected things come your way this week, this month, this year, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the spiritual electrician who is in the business of rewiring our heart responses of surprise and dismay at suffering into responses of joy and trust. To the the degree we see that happen, Let's keep on rejoicing and keep on entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray together. Father, as suffering comes our way, and it will come, we know it, we've been promised it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but we know it is coming. May we not be surprised. May we not be shocked. 
May we not be despairing. May we not feel abandoned. But may we know that you are working even these bad things for our good. In times of testing, in times of being, it feels like we're in the wilderness, in the desert, in a dry place. May we find in Christ a fountain of living water that we go to, continue to draw from, and drink. We may not know the reason for our pain, but we trust you. And we trust that you are producing good. And your glory will come of it. Lord, may every little bit of suffering that enters into our life, may we have heaven's perspective upon it now. That these are light and momentary compared to the weight of glory that is coming because of them. Uh, We will rejoice one day that we walk through our pain trusting in Jesus. May we see that now. May we know it now. May we be reminded of it again and again as we go from this place. May we be better sufferers, better followers of Christ as we take up our cross daily following after him because of the word we heard today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.